On episode 248 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to prevent injuries and recover faster with Dr. Reza Gorbani. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. If you feel like you watch too many poachable balls whiz by you and you're like, ugh, I should have poached on that one, then you should check out the doubles playbook because inside there are 48 plays from Martina Navratilova and the Bryan brothers that show you how to set up easy put-away volleys and overheads. If you look at other sports, teams run plays. Football teams run plays to score touchdowns, soccer teams run plays to score goals, and basketball teams run plays to score baskets. When it comes to your doubles game, you can run plays to set up easy put-away volleys and overheads. If you go to tennisfalls.com slash doublesplaybook, Martina Navratilova will personally show you one of her all-time favorite plays called the Prognosticator so you can see if the doubles playbook is right for you. I've used many of the plays from the doubles playbook in my doubles matches and think you should definitely take a look at it if you want to improve your doubles game. Just go to tennisfiles.com slash doubles playbook to check it out. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash doubles playbook to check it out right now. Hey there and welcome to the podcast. I hope you're doing well and are getting to play a lot of tennis these days. And today I have an interview with Dr. Reza Gorbani of APMI Health and Wellness Center in Bethesda, Maryland, which is close by to where I reside. And pretty cool how we met, actually. I never played against Reza, but, or Dr. Gorbani, I should say, but uh, we were both in a 9-0 mixed doubles league, and my teammates played against him. And then through a mutual friend, John, we uh, met and started talking. And I found out that he has a really fantastic practice as well as a huge passion for tennis and for Rafa Nadal, as you'll find out later in the interview. But I'm really excited for this interview and for you to hear it because we talk about a lot of, a lot of really important subjects, such as the critical concept of early intervention, how to train your body to prevent injuries, the best exercises to strengthen your ankles advanced recovery methods such as cryotherapy, Dr. Gorbani's experience visiting the Rafa Nadal Academy, why you've got to be proactive about treating your injuries, and a lot more. So this was a very fun conversation and very informative one as well that has really shown a light for me on being more proactive uh, about uh, my injuries whenever I experience them and to really go and seek treatment. So yeah, uh, with that, I will uh, leave it to the interview right now. So let's go to it. And I hope you really enjoy it. Everybody, welcome to this episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor to have on Dr. Reza Gorbani on the podcast. And it's kind of funny because um, 
Uh, we met through a mutual friend slash uh, us playing on opposite uh, 9-0 USA League tennis teams. And then I learned a, a lot about you, Reza, and, and you know, your wonderful practice uh, at APMI Health and Wellness that you opened up uh, somewhat recently, which we'll get into. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be really fun to hear about your philosophy and, and you know, approach to uh, health and wellness and uh, injuries and so forth. So really great to have you on. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, uh, Maribon. It was a really pleasure to meet you, uh, as I said, as you mentioned, a few weeks ago and uh, through our common friend. And uh, I'm really honored to be here and um, chat with you a little bit. I know you came and took a little tour of our facility here and uh, and you thought it might be a good way to uh, sort of tell everybody about uh, my philosophy of uh, practicing uh, medicine and my approach to health and wellness. Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, exactly. I went through uh, your facilities. It was a really fun tour and just, you know, uh, Rafa stuff everywhere and uh, amazing TVs and and, and uh, machines and everything. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Really one of the nicest places I've uh, <laughs> been to in terms of that type of facility. So just, uh, you know, I always get great stories about how my guests got their start in tennis. I want to ask you how you got your start in the game. Well, it's interesting. My um, uncle used to play tennis growing up uh, uh, back in Iran. And uh, he was uh, sort of an official government uh, person, and he would go from sort of state to state and set up their educational system. And wherever he went, he used to go and make sure that they have a nice tennis facility. And if they didn't, in the school system, he would help them uh, fund it and um, sort of ramp up, uh, make it nicer, or even build a tennis court from the beginning. So I watched him whenever I visited the family um, playing tennis, and I got interested. And one day he was playing tennis, and I picked up one of his extra rackets, and there was a wall uh, when I sort of hit against the wall. And he finished his tennis game, and he came and said, oh, I didn't know you were interested in tennis. And at the time, I was about eight years old, I think. And uh, he took me to the pro shop and bought me a tennis racket and a tennis, you know, shirt and short and the whole outfit. Came back home and uh, my father was very excited that, you know, his son got present uh, from my uncle and a big smile on his face. And my uncle told him that, yes, I spend, you know, X amount of money on this outfit, but you're going to be spending a lot of money for many years to come. (laughs) My dad didn't get it at the time. And we came back from uh, visiting my uh, uncle uh, back to um, our hometown uh, in Tehran. And um, I, uh, my uncle mentioned to my dad, you got to go sign him up in a tennis club, some lessons. And uh, we came back and uh, we went to a tennis facility. It was a public place near a park in Tehran. And uh, we uh, found a tennis coach that used to, to teach ten, uh, tennis to juniors as well as, you know, adults, signed up, uh, 30-minute sessions, I remember, um, and uh, got my first lesson there. And that's how it kind of started at around age eight, eight and a half. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And um, yeah, you know, as as you mentioned, so my, my dad is also Persian from Iran, so uh, really cool to have that link as well. And, you know, I, I read, um, you know, a preview of, of uh, an article coming out about you, which is fantastic. And Wanted to ask you about, you know, your experience like during the <laughs> Iranian Revolution. Uh, that was obviously a tough time for a lot of people. And yeah, I mean, how how was that like a, 
trying to play tennis. I read of a, a particular instance uh, in that article and just w- want to know overall. And you can also talk about that time, you know, how, how tough it was. Well, um, you know, I, again, I started playing tennis uh, before the revolution, 1979 revolution. And uh, for several years, uh, going to the tennis club and playing tennis with um, adults and juniors, and it was like playing tennis in um, anywhere in the world, like even America. And when the revolution happened, obviously for a period of time, the businesses closed down, tennis clubs, schools, and everything else. And when um, the new government took over, uh, for a period of time, they uh, were against tennis and they mm. viewed it as a Western sport. Um, and they were limited, nobody could play tennis. Um, actually, uh, one of my uh, tennis coaches, Mansour Barami, uh, who, la- who now lives in uh, you know, Paris, France, uh, he did a, you know, they've done many shows on him and interviews. And he talks also about um, that, uh, you know, he couldn't coach anymore. He couldn't play tennis anymore. And I, like many other people, couldn't uh, play tennis. Um, Obviously for me, it was more recreation, but unfortunately for a lot of tennis coaches like Mansoor, it was their livelihood. That's how they, you know, earned a living and they couldn't uh, play tennis anymore. And uh, um, he left uh, before the government was allowing people to start, you know, playing tennis again in a limited fashion. The first thing that they did was they separated men and women and uh, we couldn't play tennis together. And for a long time, women couldn't even play tennis. Then they made it sort of uh, only a certain time women can go play tennis and the area that they were playing um, had to be sort of secluded so nobody could see them and they had to wear certain uniforms to, you know, cover um, their bodies. And then um, we were not allowed to play tennis with them. Uh, we were only allowed to play with our you know, male gender. So that kind of continued for a few years I was there. Um, and then I obviously left Iran and came to America to pursue my education at age around 16, 16 and a half. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, quite an interesting journey over there. And, um, you know, it's, it's really cool that you trained, that, that Mansoor Barami trained you. I mean, as we all know, he's just so entertaining and endearing and, you know, his trick shots are <laughs> iconic as well. And he also had, you know, a very respectable uh, career. And yeah, I was reading how, as you mentioned, you know, he had to stop playing tennis and I think he played like backgammon for a while uh, instead, which is uh, very interesting, uh, uh, very intellectual he is. But um in terms of training with him, can you talk about like at what age it was that you trained with uh, Mansur Barami? And then I'm I'm curious to ask you as well about like what are some of the things that you learned from him as such a top level player? Well, you know, as I said, I started age eight and a half or so, and I was playing with a, a tennis coach. Was actually originally he was from uh, Pakistan, and he mm-hmm. had moved to uh, Iran, and um, he was. Uh, again, teaching uh, in Iran. And um, he was, uh, at the time, teaching the royal family. He uh, with the Shah of Iran, and he used to go to the palace and teach them tennis. And that's how uh, originally uh, on a tour, they saw him play tennis, and they invited him to stay over. And uh, he stayed over, and I was I didn't have the privilege to work with him. And then a few years later, I was trying to get into some junior tournaments. And um, that was when um, I uh, uh, was, you know, I saw Mansoor playing various tournaments and I approached him um, 
and through you know my family, obviously, they uh, asked him if they would coach me. So he was he coached me about a uh, I would say less than a year, and then um, obviously uh, you know he uh, everything was closed down and he had to leave. And uh, a couple of years later, you know, I had left. Um, playing with him was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of things. He didn't teach us any trick shots. Uh, we just watched him doing the trick shot. That that comes kind of naturally. Um, but it, you know, he, he helped me think, uh, more as a competitor on tennis court. And obviously the game of tennis has changed tremendously from when I was training, when I was playing up to now, but, uh, it was, it was just more mentally that he took me over the edge so I could compete, uh, in a junior level. And, uh, fortunately I was able to win, uh, several tournaments, uh, with his, uh, coaching and, and leadership. Very cool. Very cool. It's just curious. I mean, you know, s- sometimes we take breaks from tennis or, and sometimes we can't play. Like how tough was it for you mentally uh, during that period when you were really restricted from playing tennis? Well, it was hard. I mean, um, it was hard uh, not just playing tennis, but a lot of things that we took granted uh, before the revolution, <laughs> as far as the freedom of doing a lot of things were taken away from us. You know, I was at the time a teenager so it was hard to understand what's happening around us. And especially when we had them and they took it away from us all of a sudden, literally overnight. Um, so it was, it was really hard. And, um, and tennis was a sport that I really um, enjoyed playing and it kind of kept me out of trouble, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, summertime, I was just playing tennis after school. We didn't have organized sports in our school. So I would go to the tennis club and play, help me meet I was playing uh, uh, not only juniors my age, but I also was playing people who were older than me. And it was really a nice way to get to know people and people who would be much older than me. And I was a kid, then they would probably would have spoken to me because on the tennis court, we had something in common and I was able to beat them or give them a good game. They became friends with me and I made a lot of good friends that they were older than me. And I learned a lot. I grew up pretty fast. Uh, just being surrounded by um, people from you know many different backgrounds and many different ages that, again, tennis brought us together. Tennis is a great sport. It's one of the, I, I just always say, uh, uh, it's a very social sport. It brings people together from every nationality. And even if you don't speak the same language, when you go play tennis, you speak the language of tennis. <laughs> and um, And not only from... Uh, you know, many aspects of, uh, uh, you know, physical, mental, but again, um, it's a very sociable game that uh, you can play doubles, you can play mixed doubles, you can play singles. It, it's just a great sport. I can go on and on, I'm sure, about tennis. You Probably a lot of guests have talked to you about the, uh, you know, why they love tennis, but I, I can talk till tomorrow about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many facets of it. Just, I mean, you, you you learn a lot of life lessons from from tennis, and uh, you meet so many people that help you in life and become your best friends. So yeah, it's an amazing sport. I'm curious, Reza, about you know when the intersection of tennis and you know your your medical prowess began. Like, at what point did you decide to combine the two? And I mean, you can obviously like talk about the lead up, you know, the, your medical career beforehand, and then how that how they intersected? Well, you know, I, I, again, played tennis starting at very young age. Then when I came to America, I played for my high school team. 
and then I played for college. And then after that, when I went to med school, it was kind of hard with the time and start playing less and less. And then when I got to my residency, it was became almost impossible to fit it in. So I did not play tennis for many years to come, occasionally being on vacation somewhere that I would just pick up a tennis racket and play. I still continue to watch tennis. Um, and at the time, they didn't have tennis channel like they do now that you can watch <laughs> tennis being broadcasted everywhere. So whenever I you know, was able to watch some tennis on TV, I would watch it. And um, uh, so that was kind of tennis on the side. And then I continued with my you know, developing my career in medicine. Um, I specialized in pain management to be specific. Um, and, you know, pain is something that you could have pain from your spine, your back, your neck, your knees, your hip. So it's a lot of musculoskeletal uh, reasons that you could have pain. Uh, so that was kind of my career, treating people with pain, various types of pain. People would come to me because they just had injuries uh, on a you know, a tennis court or doing various type of sports or just, uh, you know, injury at work or many different reasons or just getting older. And uh, I really enjoyed treating people. Unfortunately, I would see a lot of people after the injury had occurred. And I was thinking to myself, it would be great to help people, number one, not to get injured. And also after our, you know, people who do get injured and we treat them, to help them not to get injured again. You know, what can I do to help them not to get injured? So as I was sort of growing into my field of pain management, thinking like that, more than just treating a, a physical problem at the moment, I uh, started getting more excited about tennis. And um, that was after almost two decades of not playing tennis continuously. And uh I, um, I think, again, Mansoor had something to do with it to bring me back to tennis. Um, the story goes that I had developed a, a topical pain relief cream at the time, and I was trying to, uh, you know, have my patients use it, talking about it in various uh, uh, media. And one day I saw Mansoor on TV um, at Wimbledon sitting right near BM Borg and watching a tennis match in the center court. So I got and Googled him and I found out he was living in Paris. I'd lost touch with him for many years. And um, I sort of found him on Facebook, sent him a message, didn't hear back from him for, I would say, maybe several weeks. Then um, I got a message uh, from Mansoor that, hey, Reza, you know, great to hear from you. And what do you do? You know, where are you living? So I told him about, you know, my career. And next thing I know, he contacts me and says, hey, I have, uh, you know, some knee pain and uh, I want your opinion. So we started chatting about that. And next thing you know, uh, Mansoor invited me to uh, Paris to go to the French Open as his guest. And um, I went there and met some great tennis players that he introduced me to. He was, you know, the most gracious uh, host. And it all of a sudden ignited for me to get back to the world of tennis. And then at the same time, as my career had developed in the pain management world, I decided to combine them together and see how I can sort of help the people who play tennis and get injured because that's what I'd start seeing. And as I was, you know, uh, not young anymore and I was afraid to get injured myself, started thinking about how I can 
develop a program for myself when I go on a tennis court, not to be like the other guy who's uh, injured and they play tennis and for a week they can't play anymore. Um, and got into the sort of developing the program and um, combining them together. And again, we can talk about how, what, where I am today in the, in the context of combining the medical background with the tennis world. Yeah, I love that, um, Reza. And you know, you said something where you started um, in pain management that was your specialty, but then you gradually went to being able to tell it, tell people uh, what they have to do to not get injured. So, what what are some just like general principles um, for people that that they should do to uh, to prevent injury or re-injury? Well, you know, first thing that when I wanted to get back to playing competitive tennis, um, I looked at it and I said, you know, what can I do to prevent injury? And uh, the first thing I was thinking was the fuel that I put in your body is very important. So I thought about eating properly. As a medical student and later on a, a resident and being a physician, we always tell our patients eat well, but we really did not follow that ourselves. We never had time. We always were busy. We were always on call doing things. So I thought to myself, you know, I really should do what I preach. So I got involved with a nutritionist who was telling me not necessarily lose weight, but eating healthy, which would eventually uh, end up uh, uh, by eating healthy, eating properly, you would lose weight. But uh, it was more eating healthy. That was the most important thing. So that was one of the things that I started looking into and started eating healthy. And I did end up losing some weight and um, I started feeling better by eating healthy. The second thing was um, I tried to spend, I don't want to say more time outside of the tennis court than being on the tennis court, but a lot of time outside of the tennis court in a gym. And not necessarily uh, lifting weights and building muscle, but it, working on agility, working on footwork, working on a lot of things that on a tennis court, you're not just running back and forth. You're running side to side. You're running yeah. in circle. You're doing a lot of change of direction. And um, you need to be very uh, uh, smart about how you do it and, uh, and uh, prevent any fall, any twisting or things like that could happen. Um, so I started working with a personal trainer who was working in a lot of those things. And obviously we worked on some muscle building, which protects your ligaments, your joints and things like that. So working with that personal trainer was important. And, um, the combination of those two, and then obviously I got into playing with some tennis coaches again, was, I was able to play in a competitive arena with less chance of injury. Uh, so that was kind of my idea, and that's what I still recommend to a lot of people that um, try to uh, work off court, um, doing a lot of things that uh, you can do um, to build up your muscle, your ligament, and things like that, and you know, uh, protecting your joints, and then you know, working smart on, um, on on your footwork and agility, and obviously putting the right fuel in you is going to help as well. And then later on, I got into other fancy ways of recovery, and that was cryotherapy, which I think when you came to my facility, you tried it. And um, again, going back to Mansoor, um, he was the one who really pushed me into 
bringing cryotherapy into my practice. He uh, was telling me that how at the Tennis Federation in France, they built a cryotherapy chamber and he was using it and he really found it helpful in recovery um, that helps with the improving circulation and reducing inflammation of all the joints and muscles that he had and working out. And it took me a couple of years convincing um, from Mansoor and did some more research. And then finally I brought it into my practice and I incorporated that into my literally everyday life and off-court recovery. And then we got into other types of uh, recovery being yoga, stretching, massages. Those are all very important to do um, to prevent injury. Um, so that's kind of in the overall of preventive injury. And then the next thing is early intervention, which um, I think we talked about it um, in my in my facility during a tour that um, number one, you want to not get injured. That's the ultimate goal. Unfortunately, no matter how much you try, you still may get injured. Now, if you do get injured, the key is to treat that injury as quickly as possible. Um, and that's going to change the outcome um, of your recovery, um, short-term and long-term. An example being that I was playing a tennis tournament during Labor Day at uh, the place that we met, JTCC. And uh, I lost the first set um, to this guy who was the first time I was playing with him. I was just still trying to learn how I can play against him. Uh, took me a whole set to, uh, to figure that out, unfortunately. <laughs> the second set, um, I was up and... Uh, at one of the points, I was going side to side, changing direction, and all of a sudden, I twisted my ankle and uh, almost 90 degrees and fell to the ground. That was the first time that this had ever happened to me. The ankle starts swelling up a little, pain. Immediately, I put ice on it, took some medical uh, timeout, and um, again, I was up, um, you know, five game to three, I think, or two, and um, I uh, was serving. So I thought to myself, listen, I can go back. I can just finish this game with some good, uh, smart serving. I don't have to run <laughs> around. And uh, even the, uh, the the place, and then I can quit at that time. And there was the semifinals. So I went in, and uh, I, I served, and I won the set. And then I told the guy I have to withdraw. Um, next day, I was in my physical therapy office, and I started working on my ankle. Um, the various equipment that we have, as well as some manual work. And for two weeks straight, I was in the physical therapy office working on my ankle. After two weeks, I was able to play a three-hour match. And I called the guy that I lost, set up another match, and I was able to beat him. <laughs> so the point of that whole thing was, and I was telling him, is early intervention. Had I not done... Uh, what I did being in a physical therapy office and working my ankle, my outcome would have been a lot worse. The, the area would have been more swollen. There would have been more damage and uh, it would be really harder to get back to where I was. So early intervention is the key to treat an injury. Love that. And, and so obviously some follow-ups here. I'm curious um, a little bit of what you did specifically. You know, you said that after you 
got the in- uh, injury or, you know, when you're ready to, then you immediately worked on, uh, on your injury. So what, what did you do? Maybe just like a couple of things, um, exercises or anything else you can let us know about? Well, specifically, um, my, uh, my therapist was working on manually reducing the, the swelling because there was some fluid um, mm. that because of inflammation was building out in the joint area as well in the ligament in my ankle. So manually, they were trying to kind of move the fluid out and spread mm. them out. It was a little painful while they were doing it, although they're using some topical creams that uh, helps with the pain. And then we used a lot of ice, um, a lot of ice to reduce the swelling. I used cryo machine again to help bring down the swelling inflammation. Uh, we also used the machine, which is uh, similar to a TENS unit, electrical stimulation. Hmm. By um, stimulating the area, you again improve the blood flow. And the blood flow is what takes away some of the excess fluid that is built up and helps you recover much faster. So in a swelling injury, again, you want to decrease the swelling because that pressure prevents you of moving your joint and also makes these ligaments stiffer. So the exercises that we were doing was to stretch these ligaments. And again, being in the ankle, a lot of flexion, extension, rotation of my ankle to help these ligaments get back to the normal. Because when they stiffen up, it's much harder to run on them, jump on them, and then you could tear these stiff ligaments later on. So those were the kind of exercises that we did um, stretching these ligaments. Got it. Very cool insight, uh, Reza. And and then in terms of just generally speaking, I mean, you mentioned a lot of different aspects to uh, to keeping healthy, including, you know, eating healthy and then uh, agility and such, and then uh, muscle building, yoga, stretching. So I'm wondering, like, is there some sort of (laughs) formula for like figuring out like how much you need of each, you know, in terms of like, oh, I need X percent of um, stretching on, on a day and then Y percent of agility training, Z percent of muscle building, et cetera. Well, it, uh, you know, it varies obviously from person to person, because when you start with somebody who has um, a nice amount of muscle, you may be focusing on other things. Or if you work with somebody who doesn't have muscle, you want to build up some muscle to protect the joints and the ligament. So it really varies from person to person. And uh, that's why working with some professionals, uh, it would help you sort of guide you in the whole in the whole journey. It's really hard to do it on your own. And I know a lot of people this day and age are able to get on Google and you know various apps that they tell you do this exercise or that exercise. Um, but not having sort of somebody who can guide you through these whole you know, journey, uh, you could be doing things that is redundant or you're missing. So my recommendation would be to at least start with some professionals, but then after that, you can do things on your own. Um, it's, that would be the best advice I can give to somebody. It's yeah. like, you know, I have patients who come in and they have back pain. We talk about going to physical therapy and they tell me, oh, you know, I do things, you know, why do I need to go to physical therapy? And what I tell them is that, you know, the first time you go to a physical therapist, they can evaluate, they can see their deficient, your deficiencies, and they can see your strength from a third party view. And then they can sort of teach you some and guide you some exercises 
and then you can do things on your own. You don't necessarily need to go and work with a physical therapist or in the case of this journey that I was telling you, um, you know, spend money constantly working with a personal trainer or a nutritionist or this and that. But you need to start somewhere and then later on, you're on your own to follow those things. And occasionally you might want to go back and be reevaluated of how you're doing. But, get, you know, seeking some professional help at the beginning, I think it's important. Yeah, 100%, Reza. And I feel like a lot of people, and, and you know, this goes back to your philosophy of getting, you know, working on uh, an injury as soon as possible. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of people, probably most people, when they get an injury, they they don't seek any sort of treatment and they're not proactive. I'm wondering, like, from a, a mental perspective, like, why do you think that is that a lot of people don't really take much uh proper action when they get an injury? Well, it's denial. I mean, um, we all deny and we don't want to accept that uh, we need help and we're injured. Um, people feel that um, if they use the word injury, it's a negative thing. Um, we've seen a, you know, a, a lot of juniors that they play tennis. When they get injured, they even are afraid to talk to their coaches about it or their parents and they keep playing through an injury um, because they're afraid that they're going to be put to the side and mm. then they're never going to get the scholarship that they want to get to go to a certain college. And that's kind of the wrong mentality. They think that now they're going to be uh, put a sticker on them that they're injured players. Unfortunately, uh, um, that from that sort of uh, the junior level thinking to the adults, the adults also, you know, have obviously have denial. They, they don't want to say I'm injured because that means I'm an old or I did something wrong. Um, it's just a very mental thing trying to get over that people um, have to uh, think, change the thinking. They, they, they should think of it as this is part of the process. We are going to get injured. It's inevitable. And we just need to treat this as soon as possible. Now, Another issue is that acceptance. Um, I have many friends um, in a club that they play tennis on a Monday and they can't play tennis again until Friday because they feel like, well, they need to recover that long and they think it's normal. To me, that's not normal to wait four or five days to play another tennis match. But that sort of becomes acceptance and that they live with it and they feel fine. I never forget an example of my medical clinic. I had a you know, elderly gentleman came with his wife and um, they're sat in my exam room. I asked, so looking at the chart, I saw that it was written, you know, um, some information. So I asked the gentleman, I said, do you have any pain? He said, no. I said, okay, can you stand up and walk across the exam room? He said, no. I told him why. He said, but because, because I would have pain then. And his wife turned to me with sort of a frustration, you know, laughing, said, this is what I'm talking about. He sits at home on a couch, watches TV, because if he walks around, he has pain. We can't go out, we can't socialize with friends, we can't do anything because he doesn't wanna have pain when he ambulates. We did some studying and we found out he had a narrowing in his spinal canal called spinal stenosis, which caused pain when he would stand and, and he would walk. Um, so we did some treatment with injections in the spine area after a couple of treatments, I saw him on his follow-up visit about you know three months ago, three months later, and his wife was the happiest woman more than the patient. And she was saying that, you know, now we're actually able to go out, visit our grandchildren, you know, socialize with our friends, 
getting out of the house. And she had the biggest smile on her face. I think much happier than the guy was. But that was, you know, one of the things that I've seen people adapt to a problem and they think it's normal. Um, so same thing with the tennis player. They are adapting. They say, you know, I'm not going to play for four days because it's normal. And uh, they, they deny. They deny that there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. Um, another problem, uh, Maribon, is the issue of access. Um, a lot of people don't have access to the care or the facilities that I'm talking about. They don't know where to go and who yeah. to reach out to. So they just sit at home and hope things that things just get better on their own. And the reason I've created the facility that you saw is to provide access to the people at least locally around me. And who knows, maybe one day I can sort of duplicate this in other areas as well. But access becomes very important that people uh, would know where to go and then actually do it. And then here we are for them to help them this journey from beginning till the end. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I love that, Reza. And it just, you know, to kind of, um, you know, clarify like the process for, for like when you get injured, like how it works. I mean, if somebody gets injured and then they want to get treatment, I mean, how does that work? Do they first need a referral to go to you? Like, how does, you know, what's the process like? Well, as far as uh, us, our facility, um, they can just uh, call and, you know, we accept almost all insurances, and uh, they can call um, the office and uh, say that they need to see me. Some insurances requires referrals. So we will contact their primary care doctor and we will get the referral from the primary. So the Mm. the patient doesn't need to call their primary. We would arrange all that. And, um, you know, I tell all my, you know, staff members that we need to see patients right away. Right away means some cases even on the same day, but never more than a few days. Unfortunately, sometimes the insurance companies make it very difficult to see them. Um, But I'm willing and I've told all my staff members to um, at the beginning, even eat the cost of, you know, the first visit, because I want to get the patient in. We worry about the insurances later and, you know, the future payments, but we want to get them in right away do the diagnosis, try the treatment as soon as we can. So that's kind of, you know, how they can uh, reach us. And uh, and again, with the access we talked about, um, see them right away. Love that. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic approach. And obviously, I'm sure all your patients appreciate <laughs> that you are, uh, you know, so kind as to do that. I guess, obviously, besides 
people like not getting treated treatment right away. What what would you say is the biggest mistake that they make like once they get injured? I think the biggest mistake that uh, when they get injured is they think that injury will just go away on its own. Things mm-hmm. would heal on their own with time, which it is true. They do some injuries get sort of healed by time. However, during this time um, is the part that you become deconditioned and you develop some permanent changes in the structure of the injured area, which makes you more prone to future injuries. Mm. So that is, I think, the biggest mistake that they realize that, yes, things will get better on their own. um, And yes, they, they just wait it out. That's what they tried to do, wait it out. Yeah, that doesn't sound so great, Reza, the, you know, the altering of the structures. Can you talk a bit more about that? Like, I guess when you get injured and then you're, you know, you don't get treated properly, then like you're, some compensation is happening so that you can continue to, to try to function, but it's not the same as before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there are a couple of things from a worst case scenario is in the nervous system when, uh, when somebody has what we call acute pain versus chronic pain. And the acute pain is, think of it as a candle with a flame, that you're putting your finger into the flame, it starts burning and causing pain. And that's a, you know, a normal, natural response of your body to tell you, take the finger away because it's going to burn your tissue. Now, if you do this a few times and keep start burning and actually you burn your finger, then your brain starts thinking about this finger is damaged. The nervous system starts changing. And now that's kind of acute pain. The chronic pain is you're not putting your finger in the flame. However, the finger starts feeling the burning that it is. And that's the rewiring of your nervous system. That's called chronic pain. So there are these nerves that they start waking up, even though you don't see the injury of putting your finger in the flame. And that's what we call it a bad pain versus a good pain. Good pain is you want to know that something, it hurts, so you can actually stop that whatever you're doing so you don't get tissue damage, um, structural damage. But then when you're not doing anything and you're hurting, that's a chronic pain and that's rewiring of your system. So going back to, you know, other things such as, you know, the ligaments that I was telling you, if you're not treating um, a swelling, you know, fast enough, um, that could put some pressure on these ligaments and it could change the actual uh, elasticity of these ligaments and they become more stiff. And then that could cause more injury in the future. And then when they get more tears, then it becomes weaker and more and more injuries could happen. So that's a very simple way of thinking about a ligament that structurally is changing. So does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, super interesting stuff for me, uh, non-medical field individual. (laughs) So in terms of, um, you know, injuries that you see, I was curious uh, from from what you've seen in your practice, like what are the most common top two or three injuries that you see from tennis players? Um, From tennis players, God, I mean, I've seen um, the most common that we've seen is ankle. Mm. Um, And... um, I would say uh, the tennis elbow, as they call it, the elbow pain. Yeah. 
then back pain. So those are the, the three most common that we have seen. I have not seen as many comparatively shoulder pain or hip pain, but ankle is one of the most. And again, goes back to agility and uh, mm. tennis game has really changed. The, there's more speed um, with the ball coming at you, um, with the technology changing. There's more top spin. You're running more lateral, you know, than than you, know, you used to, and faster and changing direction. And those things put a lot of pressure on your ankle. So we see a lot of ankle, you know, injuries. And going back to the, you know, elbow, um, it's not much from sort of the, uh, they're doing something to the elbow itself that is hurting. But, uh, you know, a lot of, as a tennis player, when you're um, hitting the ball, it's the core that, does a lot of the work and the, a lot of pressures on the core. And if you have a weak core, you're more prone to the injury of your elbow and your shoulder and things like that. Mm. So the stronger core you have as a tennis player, believe it or not, you prevent injuries in your shoulders and elbows. Mm. Super interesting. Is there a particular type of, um, you know, exercise that you should do for your core? Because obviously, you know, uh, there's a lot of these different programs where you you do like a, a ton of crunches and whatnot. Um, but then there's also, you know, just various types of like static holds and stuff. So uh, is there one type of or, or specific type of, um, you know, core exercises that we should be trying to focus on? Well, you know, um, again, as you mentioned, there are many different ones that, uh, you know, you're able to do. But uh, one of the most uh, popular one that I like is the planks, mm. uh, both side planks and, you know, the regular planks that you do. Um, that I think is very simple to do. You don't need any equipment and you can do it. That, that's a very good one. Doing crunches is good, but you could also, if you're not doing it correctly, you can uh, sort of damage your spine and your back. Um, mm. so you got to be careful with the crunches. And then if, obviously if you have hip problems, things like that, that could you know, cause some uh, irritation. Uh, planks are really good. Um, the, the one that you kind of throw the ball um, sideways, um, you know, being the medicine ball that you do, that's pretty good. And we have other medicine balls that you can, uh, you know, lie on it, uh, on, on the ball and do some movements and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, and we also have now equipments that we can build your muscle core. And I think I, I mentioned to you and I showed you yeah. in the, any in your visit and that that's bringing you know super technology into it that uh, not only um, you can uh, lay just in 30 minutes build 25 percent you know muscle mass after a few sessions um, equivalent to 20,000 crunches that I told you but it also can prevent if you have hip problem or hip injuries or you can't do certain things mm -hmm. this machine can really help you build it. Now, when you build that core, then you're able to do certain other things um, in the gym and that becomes sort of a help you in other um, avenue as well. So now we have the equipment too to build your core. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, pretty interesting that, you know, our <laughs> mutual friend, John, it's the one who uh, helped, uh, you know, be the catalyst for that M-Sculpt machine there. <laughs> so shout oh, out yeah. to John. In terms of um, uh, the ankle as well, which, you know, was a, injury that you had and, and thankfully recovered very quickly uh, from thanks to your uh, expertise in proactive action. What are a few practices that we can also have, like say if we're prone to ankle injuries to, uh, to help us, uh, you know, uh, combat that? 
as far as exercises go? Yeah, I would say exercises or preventative, you know, any sort of um, exercise that we could do, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think, again, um, strengthening um, exercises of of the ankle. And there are a lot of uh, things that, you know, you do with bands um, that Uh you can use resistant. I mean, I love bands in the the gym that can help people uh, in various uh, uh, body parts. So bands are one of the bigger things that, you know, I, I, I use a lot. Um, and resistance. So that helps to sort of building that uh, strength. It goes back to the ligaments and the muscles and building up and exercising it and joint mobility. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I was reading that article that I referred to earlier, at least a draft of it. And um, I saw an interesting quote uh, that you said, which is that health and looking good go together. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, what that means. (laughs) Well, you know, it's sort of part of uh, uh, our, as a human being, we always want to um, think about, you know, looking, uh, being healthier. And being healthier actually makes you look better. And by by looking better, you know, I, I don't want to think about it as a superficial of just mm-hmm. uh, physically, uh, you know, looking better. I, uh, it, it's more the attitude number one Mm -hmm. um if you are healthy and you're confident it's going to make you look better skin is very one of the you know it covers the whole body from head to toe and when you're healthy when you eat healthy actually your skin looks better look healthier i'm sure you've heard the term that people you know just when you look at somebody and they say hey you know you just don't look good you know your skin is dry and think and then you hydrate hydration is you know part of one of the things that I always talk about, you know, nutrition and eating, you know, healthy. Exactly. Hydration. So hydration helps, you know, the skin look good. So by being, you know, healthy um, and exercising, you're already doing a lot of things that you start feeling good about yourself. And when you're looking good about yourself, you want to continue that. And being losing weight, you know, building a little bit more muscle. All of those things are uh, things that, makes you look better, makes you look healthier. When people stand up straight, when you're healthy, you're standing up straight. Your core is strong, your spine, and you actually look taller. Um, and that when people are standing taller, people, you know, other people think of them as, hey, they look strong and healthy. So a lot of those things kind of go hand in hand. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess going back to uh, core strength, I was wondering, um, what what would you say are like the biggest mistakes in terms of like uh, technique for that for like crunches? Because you did mention how like people could injure themselves. So, what's the right way of doing crunches, and what's the wrong way? Well, you know, I always tell the wrong way is when you do something and it's hurting you. That's your way of body's telling you you're doing something wrong. But it's really hard to say without observing somebody mm-hmm. what they wrong but when you're doing your crunches and you're hurting and not just a little pain you know people say no pain no gain that is you know kind of a normal response of your body you're 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 doing something and it's hurting a little bit but it's becoming more and more painful um that's when your body is saying hey you, you gotta stop and you're hurting yourself and that could be again 
in, in every person could be a little bit different. Somebody's back could be weaker than somebody else. So the way they do their crunches, which could be normal, but if they're causing some pain, that's when they have to stop. Gotcha. So gotcha. And listen to your brain, you know, what the brain is telling you. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then in terms of um the, the the cryo machine, just going back to cryotherapy, uh, what is it about that machine that helps us recover? Because you know, I read how <laughs> You mentioned that uh, you know you could play three hours of tennis and then uh, you know go into the cryo machine for a few minutes and then play three more hours and uh, as well, Mansur Barami uh, you know had espoused you know the benefits of it. So like, what does it do from a standpoint of like affecting your body that allows you to recover so quickly and have uh, have energy? Well, you know, some of it is you know, mystery, <laughs> but <laughs> but generally speaking, with the cold and you know changing the temperature you're vasoconstricting, you're vasodilating your blood flow as well as your muscle. So when your muscles after a big workout builds up some lactic acid in it, you wanna get rid of it. And part of doing getting rid of it is contracting the muscle and then you have the blood vessels around it, the circulation, which you need that to take all this toxins away from that muscle, which then flushes out. So, the cryo machine does the contraction, and then when the cryo is finished, the, the vasodilatation of both the muscle and the blood flow helps clean up these toxins that they build in your in your muscle. Um, it also helps with the cold um, to reduce some of the inflammatory responses that your body has with rep repetition of exercise that you've done with your muscles and your joints, and it also helps with uh, building endorphins in your body. And endorphins are sort of a natural hormones that helps you feel stronger and, um, and and having more energy. So all of these things together at the end give you the result of improved circulation, improve uh, um, energy, you know, feeling more energetic. Gotcha, Reza. And in terms of um, you know, hot or cold, I think people get confused. Like you know, after they play tennis, like should I be you know, going to the ice bath or should I be taking a hot shower or should I be doing both? Like which, which one should come first? So um, any thoughts on, on those questions? Sure. One of the things going back to the cryo, which I love uh, compared to ice bath. I don't know if you ever done ice bath or not, but it is very painful compared <laughs> to cryo. And the reason is that cryo, you are having cold air around your body. When you go in an ice bath, there's water basically or ice, which they're physically touching the pressure, um, the receptors on your skin. And some of these pressure receptors, which air is not really affecting those, causes pain. And when you go in an ice bath, more painful, you can't be on it much longer than for me, it was 30 seconds. It was my max. And I've seen some people maybe do another minute or so. But you get a lot more. With cryo, you're there for three minutes. You can tolerate it. So you're going to get a lot more out of a cryo than an ice bath. Um, obviously, uh, you know, cryo, not every place has it. It's not accessible. That's why a lot of people use ice bath. But that's kind of the difference between the two. But going back to the you know um, question that uh, uh, you're asking me, um, when you're doing a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you need to reduce the swelling and the inflammation. And the first thing is doing, you know, ice, cryo, 
things like that to bring down the swelling, the inflammation. Then when that's kind of down, then if you want to take a nice hot shower, it would be nice to sort of loosen up those muscles that now are tired and contracted. But first you want to get all the all, all the toxins out of your mm. of, of your muscles and then help with the decreasing the swelling, the inflammation that has happened. Got it. So if you were to do the <laughs> the opposite and like you take like a warm shower and then you follow it up with like a ice bath or cryo, would that kind of like mess things up? Would it still be all right or just not as efficient? It's it's, it's not gonna kill you, but in yeah. my mind I think it's it's uh sort of defeating some of the purpose of, you know, the recovery and the most efficient recovery. Gotcha. Gotcha, Reza. And, uh, you know, one cool thing that, you know, I think you might've mentioned earlier, but, but of you treat a ton of players from uh, JTCC, including uh, Francis TFO, <laughs> who's, you know, uh, Maryland's uh, favorite tennis player. So curious, like what types of things, and, you know, I don't know how, you know, if you have to keep some of those things private, but like, what, what does he generally do or treatments that he that he takes at your office at your facility um well yeah as you mentioned you know some some of the stuff we have to do. <laughs> um however um you know francis even posted on his own social uh, media about cryotherapy so yeah. uh, cryotherapy again is something that a lot of athletes across the country have used it and publicly they've been talking about it from basketball players to tennis players to you know other people and I never forget uh, there was an epic match with uh, uh, Bavrinka and Titsipas at the French Open uh, a few years ago. It was a five-setter match, and um, after that long match, Bavrinka, which won, went and did the cryo treatment in the French yeah. uh, Federation. I showed you, and he was posting all about it. And the next day, he had another long match, and he was ready for it. So a lot of athletes. Uh, um, even from JTCC that they come, they use the cryo and they find it, you know, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great stuff. And, and also, uh, just in terms of like your facility, I'm, I'm curious, like what other, well, well, I know, you know, a lot of the machinery and, and, and tools there, but like, what's, what sort of kind of the layout in terms of like the, uh, any other, uh, machinery or tools that you have that you use on tennis players that maybe we haven't mentioned. Well, uh, we have a mechanical traction table and um, that basically it's a, a table that you lay on. There's straps around your abdomen, your thorax and your sort of uh, that area and uh, connected to a computer and um, and we enter certain information on it. And we were able to now the machine uh, knows how much to stretch you for how long and what in intensity. Um, and that's something that sort of opens up your, your, your spine. I've probably have seen some uh, commercials on, on TV or um, that people say, oh, buy this equipment and you're sort of upside down, you're floating like a bat and that <laughs> helps to stretch your back. The problem with something like that is the blood is now rushing to your, to your brain. And uh, you can't tolerate it more and can cause, you know, more problems with it. Um, and it's an uncontrolled setting. But the idea, again, is to stretch your spine. And uh, th this machine does that uh, in a more controlled and scientific way. Um, so that's one of the equipment we have. 
Tennis players have used it. I myself have used it to kind of stretch my spine. I'm trying to get taller too every day. Unfortunately, <laughs> I get up, gravity keeps pushing it down. <laughs> but uh, that's one of the things. We also have another uh, piece of equipment called cold laser therapy, which is a non-invasive uh, piece of equipment. Uses uh, different wavelengths that penetrates your muscles and ligaments uh, that they're kind of swollen and inflamed and causing some pain. Um, again, we use that uh, non-invasive uh, piece of equipment. We, uh, in our physical therapy, we have tons of other gadgets that we use, uh, including those electrical stimulation that I told you. I used it on um, my ankle. Um, another thing that we have in our place, um, I don't know if you remember it, um, is it was a wall with yep. some light. Yeah. And that helps exercise your brain. We want to focus on the physical body, you know, your joints, your muscles, everything else we talked about, but exercising brain is very important too. And uh, why do we need, you know, to exercise brain to stay sharp um, mm -hmm. on a tennis court, no matter how strong you are, um, if you're not smart and you don't have good reflexes and thinking, uh, being uh, moving fast enough, you know, things like that, using your brain, it's, it's, you know, uh, you would lose the match. Um, so this piece of equipment is specializes in exercising your brain. Um, and in this area, we're the only one who has this. Um, originally, I saw it uh, at the French Open, but six, seven years ago when I was visiting Mansoor, um, and uh, somebody, you know, would stand in front of this little wall, if you want to think of it, at some lights would come on, um, but maybe seven or eight different uh, areas, and you would touch these lights with your hand, um, so kind of help with your reflexes. That was a kind of a simple way. The wall that we have here, um, uh, it's uh, made by SmartFit, it's a company in the U.S. It uh, it has about uh, nine different uh, uh, lights, if you want to think of it, and um, areas, um, and then you can program it with different color lights come on. So you tell the trainer, program it, and you as participant will say, okay, just touch the yellow line, a yellow light. So when the yellow light comes on and another light could be red, you're not supposed to touch it because now your brain is not just reflexes, but you're training your, your brain. You know, the muscle memory that they say your arm would have when you play tennis, you want to have that kind of memory in, in your brain as far as the reflexes go. So that's, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, various programs you can have with this machine, um, with alphabets and things like that, um, that, you know, L, you touch only your left hand or your right hand. Um, you can spend literally a good hour on just one piece of equipment, simple exercise it, and then you get a score. At the end, you can compete against yourself um, or when you're in a group, you can compete against each other. So that's another piece of equipment we have here that not many places uh, focus on, and that's training your brain, exercising your brain. What else do we have here? Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, yoga, um, stretching. Um, I think stretching is important sometimes. Um, you know, when you do yoga, you're kind of limited of how much you can do, but when you have a professional stretcher working with you, they can actually push you a little bit more and focus to some areas that you cannot, you know, get the maximum benefit by stretching it. 
And um, we have that, uh, it's a human <laughs> for, who's doing the stretching is not the machine in that in, uh, different than the mechanical traction I was telling you. They work on different body parts. Um, so th that's another thing we have here. The list goes on and on. <laughs> I lose track of uh, what we have here. Yeah, but it's yeah, a no. expensive place. Yeah, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of great stuff there, a lot of quality stuff. I uh, also just want to touch upon, um, I, I know we talked about your experience visiting the Rafael Nadal uh, Academy in Mallorca, and just want to ask you um, how your experience there was and how it perhaps changed your outlook on you know, tennis and or medicine. Oh, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it was one of the best experiences I had. Um, it was um, full of energy. Um, they have a school for the, uh, for the kids. Uh, some of the kids that they go to school, they don't play tennis, but the majority of them do play tennis. They have kids from ages, I think, uh, uh, nine or 10, maybe a little bit older till 18. Um, and they spend half a day in school, half a day playing tennis or being, you know, doing exercises and things like that. Um, and then obviously I went to an adult program and you can modify that to your needs. Um, you can play one hour a day. You can play five hours a day, depending on what you want to do. You can be in the gym with the personal trainer for half an hour or two hours, again, depending on what you do. The program that I sort of custom made for myself was I was playing four hours of tennis one-on-one -on -one, um, with a tennis coach. Um, obviously, it was breaking on two two-hour sessions. There's some people who, there are two or three people with one coach, you know, two, two or three friends, um, they can do that. But I chose to do the one-on-one -on -one like that. And then, uh, so that was four hours of tennis. Uh, and then I also did some uh, matches with some of the participant later on. So I almost played five, six hours of tennis in a day. Um, I spent about an hour and a half um, with a personal trainer in the gym, working on various body parts and half an hour of uh, stretching uh, there. I spend uh, during the day about an hour with the physio. They were working on certain areas uh, of your body that they wanted. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, after doing all of that, I was beat. Um, they did not have cryo. They had ice bath, which I, again, my record was only 30 seconds. I could be in it. But after that, I would get, you know, a massage trying to kind of recover. And then next day, the day would start. Same thing. Eight hours of doing everything else. I did that for almost uh, eight days in a row. Wow. And it was great experience. I saw Rafa there training. Um, and that was another amazing thing to watch him train. You know, when you watch him on a tennis court uh, in a match, um, he puts 100%. On a practice court, he does the exact same thing. He spends 100% um, giving it on a practice court. Um, every ball he hits has a purpose. It's not goofing around. I've seen some people, you know, when they're not playing matches or during the training, they goof around. He does not goof around during the training. He's such a humble guy, walks around with no bodyguard. People can approach him. You never know. He won so many grand slams, getting autographs, taking pictures with him. Um, it's it just a very nice thing to see somebody um, in with that uh, stature being so humble. Um, I even saw him, and this is not a rumor, he cleaned the clay court after he finished the, the training. 
And, um, you know, the coaches there, the energy, there's a lot of energy there. And again, over there, they do have a clinic, um, not to the extent that we have everything here that you visited, but they also spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, injury, talking to the kid, um, the juniors that they're playing there and trying to keep him healthy. And that was uh, another thing that I tried to bring back that mentality, try to keep the juniors healthy, educating them, telling them about, as I mentioned earlier during the podcast, that don't be afraid if something bothers you, you're injured, to communicate that with your coaches, uh, with your trainer, so they can treat it you know, pro- properly. Uh, so it, it was a great experience. Uh, I, I loved it. I've been there twice, and unfortunately, the pandemic happens, and I couldn't go, and I'm trying to get back there again uh, as soon as I can. Yeah, I love to hear that. And, you know, I'm sure it's much different when you actually like see Rafa's intensity like in person versus just like hearing about it probably has a more profound impact on you. So uh, that is that is super cool. Reza, uh, do you also have like a like an open house event coming up uh, pretty soon as well? Is that right? Um, Yes, we have, uh, you know, an open house coming up on May 5th, uh, Cinco de Mayo. Um, And I think it's about four to seven. Um, And um, our address is uh, 5454 Wisconsin Avenue in Chevy Chase, Maryland. We're right near the border of the uh, D.C. uh, line, the District of Columbia. Um, And uh, if you guys uh, are around, you can come and uh, see the place for yourself, get a tour. There are a lot of uh, uh, promotional things that we're doing, giveaway um, for people. and uh, you, you can see everything that I told you in person, meet some of the team members here and um, experience everything I said in person. Again, that's on May 5th coming up uh, um, four to seven um, at APMI Wellness Center in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Very cool, very cool, Reza. And um, is there anywhere that you'd like people to go that to like follow either what you're doing or what APMI health and wellness are doing, like any socials or websites or anything like that? Um, yes, we do have a Facebook um, and we have an Instagram. So you can find us again, both on Instagram and Facebook, Facebook APMI wellness um, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And, uh, you know, we post frequently a lot of the stuff that we have here and um, things that we do and uh, people that come here and their experiences. If you visit our uh, website, we get a lot of information on it too. And that's www.apmiwellness.com. And um, there's a section about, you know, some videos that we've posted of, you know, people's experiences of being here. So it's it's a very unique uh, place that I've tried to create. Um, but more than anything, it's my message that um, even if you can't come here, try to remember things that I was telling you and uh, and uh, incorporate that into everyday life that you have um, on and off the tennis court. Love that. Love that, Reza. Um, fantastic. And yeah, is, are there any other points that you'd like to chat about that I have maybe haven't asked you about or just want to give you the floor for, uh, you know, one more uh, comment or anything like that, if you'd like? Well, again, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, giving me this platform to, you know, speak about 
what I really am so passionate about. And um, that's now combining uh, tennis and, uh, and, and medicine that, you know, I love both. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think tennis is a, one of the best sports. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your audience are already tennis players. I don't have to preach to them. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sport that you can play at a very, very young age. You've seen, I'm sure, as soon as you can stand up and hold a racket, could be two years old, you can play tennis. Till I think the officially the 100-year-old tennis player is a Ukrainian, or 97, I'm sorry, 97, I believe. It's a Ukrainian uh, gentleman who was in Rafa's academy um, playing a tournament and met Rafa and uh, video of them are all over the social media. So you can be that old and play tennis. Um, there was a study came out uh, in one of the Scandinavian countries um, a while ago that uh, showed people who play tennis actually live longer. And you know, people say, well, why? It's not just a physical aspect, but as I mentioned earlier, it's a social sport. Um, and people who are actually more social, as they grow older, they can live longer. Um, the friendships that they're built um, on a tennis court is priceless. So it's it's a game that uh, can bring people together from um, any uh, nationality, any race, any gender, um, any age. They can just play together. Um, and uh, it, it's a physical game, which... Um, Again, that's another topic we can talk about how the game of tennis have changed since I started many years ago to now. Um, and um, um, also it, it's a game that not only is physical, but mental. Um, and it has a lot of great life lessons. And um, tennis is one of the few sports that you could be down two sets, match point, and with one more point, you're out. You can come back. You can come back and win. So, um, you know, never give up. That's one of the things that uh, in tennis, anything could happen and just stick with it, continue. And that was one of the things I love about Rafa is he plays one point at a time. Um, and uh, you never know. You could be down all the way to match point and you play one point at a time, you can come back. Um, so it's it's a great game. Again, maybe one day we can talk about my, my um, uh sort of opinion on the tennis game compared to many other sports. Um, but uh, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we had this opportunity to talk about um, what I can offer to a lot of tennis players. And again, every athlete, everything that I told you here applies to other sports as well. You can play lacrosse, you can play basketball, football, um, anything, and uh, get injured and uh Things that I mentioned earlier applies to every sport and everybody. Yeah, fantastic, Reza. And I guess, you know, you, you brought it up. So before we go, um, I'm curious to, to hear how the game has, in fact, uh, kind of changed since you uh, started playing it. Well, it's become a lot more physical and a lot more mental. Um, and I think obviously more physical than mental. Uh, um, and uh, the mental part is, again, because of the physicality of it changed makes it mentally more challenging. But yeah, I mean, uh, it, the the racket has changed, the technology, the, the strings have changed. 
Um, the speed of the ball has changed, but the top spin um, and uh, the tactics um, have changed. People used to serve and volley. Surfaces have changed. I mean, that was a very uh, typical tennis match with Pete Sampers, if you remember, uh, uh, you know, one of the servant volleyers that you beat, you know, Yannick Noah was another guy, John McEnroe. They all used to serve and volley, and the points were very short. Um, and But now points are much longer. People are playing more from the baseline that they used to. And playing from the baseline um, is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, lateral movements, a lot of speed. Um, the ball is coming at you. It's not floating with uh, huge speed. I mean, now sometimes these winners are 105, 110 miles per hour. Um, it's amazing. Serve has changed tremendously. And uh, as you can see, people have gotten taller in the, when the tennis players. It used to be, you know, the ideal height was, you know, 5'10", 5'11". And now it's not uncommon. You see people were you know, six one, six two, with Rafa Novak and Rogers' uh, generation, and now with the Medvedevs and Hachinovs and Tsitsipas and Zarevs, they're all six four, six five. Um, American tennis player Isner and Pelka, they're all like taller than that. Um, so the game itself has become a lot more physical um, than it used to be. And uh, you know, when I was playing tennis, our off-court uh, preparation was just run around the court for you know two three laps and do a little bending over and uh, standing up and that was your sort of stretching now there's a science behind all of those things and what you know all the different exercises dynamic stretching before you start a game it's another thing you know um, before I go you know talking about injuries if you spend you know 10 15 minutes before you start your match, doing some dynamic stretching, you're preparing your body. So when you go on a tennis court and you make that, you know, run for the drop shot or running from left to right, you're less chance of, you know, injuring yourself. You know, your, your muscles are loosened, your ligaments are looser, your joints, you know, all of those things. So unfortunately, you know, some of the people I talk to, they say, I don't have time to spend, you know, 10 minutes doing stretching before. Um, I think, you should stretch obviously before and after, but stretching before, it's definitely one of those things that helps prevent injuries um, doing that. Um, I try to do it before long matches. You know, my record has been playing six hours straight of tennis match. Um, so it's not uncommon when I play three, four, three, four hours. And um, I spend about 40 minutes before those long matches doing dynamic stretching. Um, and that really helps. Now, afterwards, again, you need to do get all the re stretching, recovery, things like that, that can help you. Love that. Yeah, uh, definitely the game has changed and much more physical. And that's why uh, we need to take even more care of our, our bodies than, than before. So uh, good stuff, Reza. Well, yeah, with that, definitely encourage everybody to check out apmiwellness.com. And if you're in the area, if you're around, you know, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, et cetera, then uh, come visit the open house on May 5th. Uh, so that would be fantastic. Um, Reza, thanks a lot. I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you either, um, you know, at your facility or on the court sometime. And I'm sure we'll, we'll do that soon. So uh, 
appreciate your time and looking forward to chatting next time. And thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, again, thanks for the opportunity. And I hope you invite me back again. Oh, for sure. For sure, Reza. Thanks a lot and have a good one. You too. Thanks. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Reza Gorbani. And if you are in the area, I definitely would highly recommend that you check out APMI Health and Wellness Center, especially on May 5th when they have their open house. So definitely go to their website. Links in the show notes. So when you pop open this episode in in Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast app of choice or on my website at tennisfiles.com slash podcast, you will see the link to API, uh, sorry, APMI Health and Wellness Center, and you can check them out. It's a really great facility. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, and if you have found value from the show, then I would really, really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app that you use to listen to the show. I think we have well over 100 ratings and reviews right now, which is cool. So definitely, definitely helps give the show more exposure and put it higher in the rankings. And I really just only care about that because then more people will see the podcast when they search for Tennis Podcast and they'll listen and benefit. So definitely would appreciate that review uh, if you haven't already left one yet. I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and this one is by Jim Rohn, and Jim said, if you are not willing to risk the usual, you will have to settle for the ordinary. Really fantastic quote there. You definitely don't want to leave this earth with any regrets, and so you got to go for you know, those goals that you really feel inside of you that you want to pursue. All right. With that, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Maribon Aranshad signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.